Hello, and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for those of you who continue to support via Patreon. It is an immense help and actually 100% necessary to fund the operation and publication and production of this podcast. Without it, I wouldn't be able to do it. So thank you so much. And if you would like to support this podcast via Patreon, that link will be in the show notes and on this episode web page and the support page of organicwinepodcast.com. I wasn't able to publish an episode last week because the responsibilities of running a small winery completely filled my week. I had three bottlings in close succession and then our spring wine club release for Centralis, which was awesome. I was really excited to bottle our 2022 prickly pear and grape co-ferment. And between Wine Club and a few local shops and restaurants who've been great supporters of Centralis, that wine is already sold out a week later. I love how this wine has been embraced, and I hope that means that people have begun to embrace the ideas and values that it stands for as well. I've also realized that Centralis is more of my art project than a winery, and I'm a pretty classic struggling artist. Much like this podcast, the wines I make and sell for Centralis don't pay me a salary, but every one of them tells a story and reflects an approach to living in the world that I'm passionate about and want to promote. Yes, it's pretty limited in scope, But I want to make it the most amazing, beautiful, and meaningful wine and podcast that I can within those limits. My guest for this episode is Dan Derica, and when I asked Dan about what inspires the work he does, he essentially credited limitations for his inspirations. What if we couldn't throw fossil fuels at our problems? What if we eliminated the easy solutions we've relied on for the past 80 years? What if you couldn't use fossil fuels to make or sell your wine? No driving, no electricity, no chemical sprays or fertilizers or diesel farm equipment. Answering these what-ifs would inevitably cause us to arrive at a very local wine culture in both scale and reach. Putting these limitations on ourselves would make us more resourceful, creative, ecological, and adaptive in our thinking. And these are some of the questions that I think we will need to start asking ourselves. Dan lives in a unique community called Dancing Rabbit Eco Village in Missouri, and he describes this very special community, so I don't want to spoil that, but you're in for a treat. (laughs) And at Dancing Rabbit, he also farms a no-spray polyculture vineyard built on the principles of permaculture. Yes, that's no-spray in Missouri, folks. He also produces and hosts the Hardcore Sustainable YouTube channel, where you'll find a lot of helpful information about living and growing vines without fossil fuels, and you can get to see what Dan is up to, which is a lot. He has gotten used to it, but when you see the life that he lives, it can seem pretty radical. Dan also mentions how far our understanding of what the best agriculture is has grown so much in the last 20 years that the idea of organic is kind of outdated, and I couldn't agree more. I've joked multiple times about changing the name of this podcast, and that might actually happen soon when I have a spare minute Tino redo the entire online infrastructure that it relies on. So I guess for now, it will stay the Organic Wine Podcast, but know that in my heart and in everything that it stands for, it is so much more. After recording, 
Dan and I spoke a bit longer, and he also proposed the idea that I really loved, that historically, vineyard establishment has probably taken much longer than it does now. Vineyards were likely integrated into a local ecosystem over decades rather than years, and thought of as an intergenerational project. Finding vines and other fruit that thrive without sprays can take years of selection and even breeding. Building fertility and resilience into a vineyard takes years of ecosystem enhancement. I hope to be able to reach back out to Dan in a few years and see how the development of his vineyard has come along. Also, we talk about how the future we face will require us to stop thinking of ourselves as grape growers or apple growers or any single vineyard or orchard system managers and start becoming polyculture farmers who grow a diversity of dozens of crops and who build a business plan based on much less than 100% production. This year in California, we just lived through one of the wettest winters on record, and that's following one of, if not the driest years on record. The Northeast U.S. just had the awful combination of an unseasonably warm April followed by a multi-day freeze in May, which devastated the vineyards and orchards there. What Dan is doing, even though on a smaller scale, is an example of what is possible in even the most difficult growing conditions when you approach wine with a different mindset. Enjoy. Dan, thanks so much for doing this. Welcome. Thank you. And I want you to, could you introduce yourself and just talk about where you are in the world? Uh, my name is Dan Derica, and I live at Dancing Rabbit Eco Village, which is in northeastern Missouri, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. What What is Dancing Rabbit Eco Village? Uh, basically, it's a community, an intentional community that was set up around ecological values and uh, trying to create a model for living more sustainably. So uh, we started building, you know, a village on an empty farm. And we've, you know, set up all these systems, you know, invited people to come here and live and we share resources. Um, we have our own microgrid. So we're producing all of our power from solar and wind. Um, and then that is connected to the wider grid. We have a, a car sharing co-op. So we don't own personal vehicles or we don't use them uh, at Dancing Rabbit. And we share four vehicles among like 45, 50 people, um, which encourages us to carpool. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, um, yeah, we build all of our structures, like our houses and buildings out of reclaimed and natural materials as locally, you know, acquired as possible. Um, and, and the idea is, okay, you're creating a village from the ground up along these principles of sustainability and you're sharing resources, like having the community allows you to share resources with other people. Um, and so we, we build very small houses. We have like common facilities, like common kitchens. We, we eat in, some people eat in eating co-ops and so they're sharing a kitchen so they don't have to build their own kitchen in their house. Um, and then also we have like shared bathroom spaces and showers so that we don't have to build those things in our houses. We can build tiny houses. Um, mm. Yeah, the whole idea is sort of um, integrating these methods of sustainable living into our everyday lives so that we don't really even notice them anymore. They're just a part of our lives. And, you know, when I first came to Dancing Rabbit, I was really excited about the idea of building my own straw bale house and um, 
living off grid and, you know, producing all my power from solar and everything and growing my, as much of my food as I can and um, sharing cars with other people. And then a few years later, I just, it became old hat and I was, I don't even notice these things anymore. And really the only reason I'm reminded of the way that I live here, that it's like kind of radical is that I had this YouTube channel and I'm sharing it with other people or we have visitors come through and people that are potentially interested in living here. And uh, I, sh I share the story with them or I'm on a podcast like this and I can tell people what I'm doing. <laughs> and we all, our jaws, our jaws are on the floor when you're done, <laughs> when you're done with introducing the space. Um, that does sound really amazing and radical in the best way. I, I mean, I really love it. I, I feel like we could talk a lot about just so many questions about all of that and what that's like but yeah. um what i hear you saying is despite that extreme difference from the dominant culture um humans can adapt and get used to it and and find it comfortable and and easy uh, you know normal yeah it doesn't feel like you're sacrificing much and i think there are so many like benefits that you you know sort of like side effects that are positive to living this way that you never would have predicted. And I think that's that's the way with a lot of things like this, when you implement methods of living more sustainably, it's like, oh, I'd rather not be sitting in a traffic and sitting in traffic in my car for hours or just, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather live in a village that's a pedestrian village and I don't have to see cars driving around or hear noise, you know. Mm. So how, I mean, my one big question is, uh, obviously you have a YouTube channel, Hardcore Sustainable, is that it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Hardcore Sustainable, if anybody wants to look that up, Danderica. Um, but you also, I mean, I'm imagining people have to make cash in some way. They m must participate. I mean, you have internet, you have, I'm, I'm sure some, you know, obviously things that you need from the outside world. What do people do in terms of? that like are people independently wealthy do they have remote type work do like how does money work in the village yeah it's always uh it's always an issue and it's something that people struggle with here um partly because we're so far away from any population center so and and because we have the limitation on personal vehicle ownership um we're sharing four cars so you can't really commute to a job if you only have four cars to use so we're limited in what we can do. And we're also, because we're just like a village, we're all on our own for, we have to come up with ways to make money. And so people do all different kinds of things. Sometimes people build, uh, do construction for other people building their houses here. We've had like midwives delivering babies in, in the past. Um, a lot of people do have online businesses. Uh, and I think for the like early part of our economic development, that's always going to be a, a big part of it. And it's it's also been the reason why like Dancing Rabbit was started in 1997. And I think the reason it's thrived and been able to continue to exist is because of the internet, because mm. it's sort of a lifeline to economies outside of Dancing Rabbit to draw in uh, income. And it would oh. be much harder to, you know, before pre-internet to be making money just out as far as we are from any kind of population center. Um, so yeah, can people kind of like piece together their income from different sources. Like I 
you know, have a bunch of different sources of income. I have uh, a bookkeeping business and so I have clients and, and do bookkeeping for small businesses as well. So, oh. um, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And that's a really interesting insight about the, the, the value of the internet to this kind of community. Um, like I said, we could probably talk <laughs> a lot just about this life and what that's like. But, you know, part of the reason I found you was because of your YouTube channel and the fact that you, you know, a lot of the principles that it sounds like you, the village is designed upon and the, the agriculture that you're working with. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about what that is, but it's, you know, I, I just did a little Google search of, uh, with the phrase permaculture vineyard. And that's how I stumbled upon some videos by you and found you and tracked you down and stalked mm -hmm. you online and uh -huh. invited you to do this. So I, I, if you could talk a little bit about what, what, what is the agriculture like? I mean, obviously you guys are growing your own stuff. Are there, are there rules in place for how that's done? And, and why did you in the midst of this decide to grow a vineyard? <clears throat> Well, first of all, we do have we have six basic covenants that are overarching rules about sustainable living here. And we've just sort of chosen these things to make rules about as far as sustainable living. And one of those is that all agriculture and horticulture has to be done organically. Um, so, yeah, since, you know, the late 90s, there's obviously been a lot of changes and and development and what people think is the most sustainable form of agriculture. And so it's a little outdated to just have it say organic, but uh, we do also have an additional agriculture policy that sort of backs that up and encourages much more like regenerative practices. And we have like uh, policies about uh, grazing livestock and, and things like that, prevent, preventing erosion and yeah, implementing more like permaculture practices into into agriculture. So the, although we do have that overarching covenant about organic agriculture, um, it sort of goes further than that because we've developed this more in-depth agricultural policy that, um, you know, requires people to just do agriculture in a certain way here. It sounds um, like it's a much more holistic perspective than just organic is what you're... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, before I moved here, I had, you know, since I was a kid, I've been growing grapes because where I grew up in Ohio, there used to be these conquered vineyards right along Lake Erie. And, uh, you know, I think they produced jam and, and other products, juice. And uh, so where I lived was sort of a suburb that had been built on top of an old grape vineyard. And so there's this wooded area down the street that still had these furrows, um, like hills and, and, uh, swales uh in the land and there were wild conquered grape varieties just growing in the trees and so i kind of got inspired by that we'd eat them as kids and then i took some some of those vines and i put them in my yard and i i grew grapes all the way back from and i've been gardening since i was like seven years old um mm. so it's been in my mind for a long time and then i've i've pretty much been raising grapes ever since but when i moved to Dancing Rabbit, one of the ideas that I had for making income was um, was to have a vineyard and a winery. And uh, I was more interested, I mean, obviously, when you start a, a vineyard and a winery, ideally, you would look at the land first and and go <laughs> go based on where, where the best land is. Um, 
instead of the opposite, which is I wanted to live at Dancing Rabbit and the land was sort of the like, oh, this is something that I could potentially do at Dancing Rabbit. Um, but one thing that I didn't know before I moved here was that um, the land had been severely degraded by conventional agriculture. So we live in like rolling hills in, in northeastern Missouri and um Farmers in the past decades, especially on our land, have just opened up the hillsides to row crops and all the topsoil washed away. And so we have, you know, eight to 10 inches at best of topsoil before you hit heavy clay. And there's some areas like that I was sort of scouting when I was locating the vineyard that just had no topsoil. It was just pure clay right at the surface. So that's sort of what I found out quickly that I was dealing with. And, um, and knew that it was going to be a much bigger project at that point. But I still wanted to, I started out with this experimental vineyard and that's, that's what I have is like a one acre vineyard. That's just, it's always been kind of experimental to figure out what varieties grow best in, in our soil, in our climate and with organic, uh, practices. And, um, and so it's been a huge challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, just going back, I, I was I was laughing because of uh, you're you're talking about the term organic being an outdated term, and I I often think about that with this podcast. I'm like, this definitely is even for my life and for this podcast is far outdated for what this podcast has become. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I I feel that I definitely feel that. where I started. You know, my journey was somewhere you know was in that zone, and now I'm way beyond that, way more radical. I'd say. Um, you so can you give us so it's an acre size now you call it a permaculture vineyard and i, I want you to talk about a little bit about what that means to you um how, how are you somebody that has gone through the permaculture design certification course yeah i have done okay. one of those and um okay. yeah and i i wouldn't say that i'm like a permaculture expert or anything i mean it's it's easy to be considered an I guess, a permaculture expert if you've gone through a certification class, but it, it was like a 10 day class. So it's not, it's not like it's yeah. super extensive. And also like I have like decades of experience gardening and, and, you know, identifying wild plants and, and horticultural experience. And so before I even took that permaculture certification, I knew a lot about plants and growing stuff. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, and I guess, you know, to some degree, I, I definitely consider the vineyard to be implementing, I'm implementing permaculture practices, but it's not like a food forest. It's actually, you know, a vineyard with trellises and in a line and on a grid pattern. Um, yeah. It's just in between the grapes and the way I've laid out the vineyard and in between the grapes, I've left room for other things to happen, like um, intercropping with other other crops, vegetables and flowers and uh yeah. And then I, yeah. you know, had livestock roaming through there and, and, and grazing and, um, yeah. So do all, all different kinds of practices. Um, but it's still mostly very much like a regular grape vineyard. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like polyculture is a, is one of the key aspects there that you, you know, that you're pulling in if you were going to go, you know, under the permaculture umbrella, I guess you could say, but it also mm-hmm. just seems practical given, the lifestyle that you have there to like, I have an acre of land. It, it can grow grapes and multiple other things like animals and veggie crops and stuff like that. So you're, 
how did you it sounds like when you planted the vines though you had some of this in mind and i'm just curious how you like you i think you just spaced the vines a little bit wider than you otherwise would have is that correct yeah i put them uh the rows are 10 feet apart so that lives leaves a little bit more room i think standard is more like eight at least yeah. in this area and then eight eight feet between vines and i i do have eight feet between vines and they're just most of them are top cordon trained so there's just one one wire um, <laughs> and i have a few others that are sort of uh niffin trained and or um mid wire trained so there's there's a few different methods of trellising but yeah it's mostly mostly top cordon and then the the spacing is slightly wider and i wanted the 10 feet in between the rows so that there could be better airflow um and because i knew i was going to be um growing organically and i just wanted it to have more sunlight penetration and more airflow through the vineyard to prevent disease so what are you growing in between i, I know I, I was kind of surprised to see how much you were growing and but can you talk a little bit about how you do that what you're growing yeah um intercropping with well, there's enough space that I can fit a tractor pulling like a, a four foot wide tiller uh, between the grapevines, the rows of grapes. And so I, I will sometimes, most of the time I have to end up having to till up a, like a grass strip um, and then plant in it. Sometimes I plant green manures like clover to get things prepped. And then I till those in and then I can plant um, like a single row down the middle of like squash or cucumbers in the middle of summer. And it's not a huge space. I mean, I'm, I may be planting like a 150 foot long row of uh, these different um, squashes, melons, uh, cucumbers in that space. And then I mulch, uh, put straw mulch all around the sides of them. And so then they can grow from the middle of that um, bed out towards the grapes on either side. And uh, they don't because they're kind of low growing crops, they don't really interfere that much with the airflow. Um, and I also have irises uh, like German irises and Siberian irises that I've been growing and they're taking up maybe another 300 foot of bed or so, maybe a little bit, maybe like 350 foot of bed um, in between grapes and a couple of different between a couple of the different rows. And so those I'm going to be selling uh, the bulbs. I'm just trying to kind kind of trying to experiment with different ways that I can make income off of the space instead of it just being grapes, growing grapes. And also to some degree, it's less maintenance because if I just have mulched irises growing there, I don't have to go through and uh, mow on a regular basis. So um, yeah, so I've got different income streams coming from the same space. And as long as they don't interfere too much with like the the growth of, of the grapes or the airflow in the vineyard, um, it seems to do pretty good. And and often I'll end up adding a lot of manure to the beds in between the grapes, and then that sort of you know filters filters a little, uh, across to the the grape rows and and feeds them as well. Right. And uh, yeah, and I don't till deeply. It's like the tiller only goes about three inches deep iris roots are pretty shallow and um 
the other plants, like the vegetables, things like that, that I plant don't really compete much with the grapes and certainly not as much as what it would be otherwise, which is grass. Right, right. Yeah, yeah you have some good videos about the grass there and what you've done with comfrey um, mm -hmm. to, to create like a, a permanent cover under the vines that stays low and outcompetes the grass. Um, yeah. There's some, uh, yeah, you're doing a lot of cool things. I mean, I was really surprised to see you growing like watermelons and cucumbers and all these things down the middle, uh, all these veggies, especially some of the ones that are, you know, those, you know, squashy types that are, <laughs> I know there's a better technical word for that, cucurbita or something like that. Mm -hmm. The uh, Those types are, are often mildew prone, powdery mildew prone, especially. Do you, and you know, I always... I'm hesitant because I'm doing the same thing here at Crenshaw Crew in Los Angeles, and we have you know, we have powdery mildew, you know, yeah. like parties every day here. And so I'm always hesitant to put something like those kind of crops in between the vines or around the vines just to add to that load in the vineyard or, you know, in among the vines. But mm -hmm. you're not, are you having any problem with that? Do you notice that kind of issue? You know, we do have high humidity here and high temperatures in the summertime and it can be pretty wet, especially in the spring. If we like during grape development, when the, when the berries are green is when they're most vulnerable. And I tend to have more problems with bunch rot than mildew on mm. the, I mean, on the leaves, like there are some, some of the like conquered type uh, varieties seem to get more mildew, but like the, the hybrids, I don't, I don't really see much problem with them. And it's not, it's more like the bunch rots that seem to affect the, the grapes in a, in a wet year, especially during that green berry stage. Oh, well, um, I haven't noticed and I do a rotation, like people are surprised that I can grow cucumbers and squash here because uh, we have squash beetles and then we have cucumber or squash bugs and cucumber beetles. And so I just do this rotation and I really don't have problems with those pests. Um, and I think to some degree that also uh, prevents the the powdery mildew from being a problem. So. Yeah. Is Do you think the, the lack of those pests has to do with the diversity that you have implicit in that in your system? Or is it, you know, like it you're not, you know, help, helping definitely. Uh, I would guess it's more due to like rotating and moving the beds around to different parts of the vineyard because yeah, people that grow here, people that grow squash and cucumbers in the same spot, even a couple of years in a row, their, their next crop is just going to be infested with those pests. So Got it. I just don't, don't run into that problem in the vineyard because of the rotation, huh. I think. And it could be because, because it's confusing to have, uh, you know, like polyculture. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's confusing to have polyculture. <laughs> well, it's um, confusing for the bugs, you know. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> do you, uh, well, I, and you brought up the grapes. So let's step back and, you know, what your knowledge was, I guess, coming into establishing this vineyard about which varieties you were going to yeah. do. Did you trial mm -hmm. a bunch of different varieties? What, you know, what uh, is, how important is the variety versus the management that you you do and what is that management like? Yeah. Um, well, this was intended to be an experimental vineyard, as I said. And so what I was doing from the beginning was planting a bunch of different varieties. And I started out by looking at sort of the disease resistance of different and the hardiness of different varieties to 
match them to our soil and our conditions and potentially, you know, that organic practices so that I could just start out with the best varieties going into it. And so I selected um, different uh, French American hybrids, some American grapes because, but, but mostly French American hybrids, because I knew I wanted to make wine. Um, and then a mix of like, you know, purple and, and white grapes, just so that I could uh, make white wine and, and red wine. And yeah, and then I planted maybe like 15 different varieties and waited a few years to see how they responded to the soil, to the, um, to the organic conditions. Um, and some of the varieties like Norton, which is one that's commonly grown in, in Missouri. Um, it might even be like the state grape. I don't, I don't know, but, um, it's definitely grown pretty widely in Missouri. And that is like grows well in heavy clay soil. Um, Every year, no matter what the weather, the clusters are perfect, like with no, no kind of spray, nothing. I do, for all my grapes, I do cluster thinning and then I do um, like leaf removal to, to you know, pr- promote flow of air through the, through the canopy. And that's mostly what I've been doing. I, early on, I did spray copper and sulfur just to see what... Um, what the effects would be. And then I was just not noticing much of an effect um, in a wet year. And then I found some information that are like, even under ideal conditions, this might help by like 10, you know, improve yield by like 10 to 15%. And I was like, is this really worth me going through and spraying regularly? Um, <laughs> so I, I just was like, it's not really worth it. Um, and there are other things that I can do. And I, and because it's not, um, you know, a commercial vineyard, it's more of a hobby vineyard at this point. I'm, I'm like not as concerned about, um, every, like every year being super productive. I might get a year where it's really wet at the wrong time of the year. And, and then I get a bunch of bunch rot in certain varieties and those ones just don't produce much. So there's, there's some other varieties like Frontenac, which is one that I think was developed in Minnesota. And there's, there's other sub varieties of that, like Frontenac Gris, and then there's Frontenac Blanc. And they say that this is like a super hardy and super disease resistant variety, but down here, it doesn't seem to be nearly as uh, resistant to disease. Um, so Got it. it's gotten bunch rots where probably up north, it wouldn't get the same kind of uh, disease pressure. So you're saying you're not spraying anything, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I have done uh, like uh, compost tea, like that kind of um, feeding, which was supposed to also help with some control of disease. Uh, So when do you do that? What time of year? uh, It's usually just, you know, during the time when the uh, when the grapes are growing, you know, like producing new leaves. So, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah (laughs) right right foliar feeding so you're not doing like biodynamic preps or anything like that either not like you know things that might be like a horse nettle tea or something like that or is that included not for like organic practices or like control of pests or anything i don't don't really have like the the um bunch rot seemed to be the biggest problem for the grape production and then once the grapes are developed I have to net all of the the vines because if I didn't do that, then 
birds would eat every last grape in there because we just have most of our land. We have 280 acres and most of it's just wild land and it's prairie restoration. Like we have such a diversity of birds on our land that they would just devour every grape if I didn't put up bird netting. And um, so, yeah, that's those are the biggest (laughs) pests that I have to deal with. And um, and it's in most years, it seems like now I've gotten to the point where I've whittled down to like the varieties, like five or six varieties that do well in our soil and our conditions, organic practices. And uh, I've gotten rid of all the other ones and replaced them with these ones that do better. And so um, that changes like, you know, the reliability of the crop is, is much more. Uh, what, what are yeah, those that you've reliable. found have done well for you besides Norton? Norton, obviously being one. Norton's one that I think it's our, you know, probably the oldest hybrid, uh, you know, variety. That yeah, I'm not sure how it, it came from Virginia. I know that, um, and then yeah. was brought out here. Was commonly grown in, but I don't remember exactly the history of it or if it's it's you know, yeah. people. I th- I think it's. I mean, okay, I'm just putting some hearsay out there in the world. I it's shrouded in mystery, so that's probably why it's hearsay. But anyway, I think. A guy named Norton found it in his backyard, but I don't think mm-hmm. he was responsible for it. I think what happened because you have you had all these people bringing vinifera over is that there was probably a a, a, a wild cross between Vitis estevelis vines, which are one of our native vines, and mm-hmm. and a vinifera, and then you know a bird pooped it out and it grew, and he was like, "Wow, this is doing really well, and it's producing good stuff," and so then. He propagated it, um, yeah. Norton. But I, I think <laughs> I could be wrong. Somebody could, be, but I think that's the story. I think, I mean, I think the best guess is that it was probably a wild cross with vinifera, um, and then yeah, it was just like discovered rather than bred. And yeah, it was a, you know, one of the it, we can thank nature for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, the same thing is true for Concord was was a very similar thing. It right, like right, a, a wild cross and. They planted vinifera initially, like the Europeans, and then all their vineyards just died. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. um, right. Yeah. and everything else. And so, like, <laughs> and so yeah. then they found the wild ones that were like, oh, these these are actually kind of different from the the normal wild ones. And I guess during the few years when their grapes were producing the vinifera were producing before they died off, they crossed with the wild ones. And, yeah, right. Did some hybrids. So- so what, sorry, so I, I went on that tangent, but what what other ones, <laughs> what, other, what else is working for you there? Um, there's one that I grow that some of called Prairie Star. I have one called St. Yep. Pepin, yep. Um, Concord, and a bunch of different Concord relatives. There's like one called Steuben and one called Fredonia that um, I do make some wine out of those, uh, the Concord type, and I've lately been pressing those and making like a, a white or a rosé wine with them because I tend to like the white wines that I can make here better than the red wines that I've make, made. And then I also mm-hmm. make just regular grape juice and canned grape juice from some of those Concord types. Um, and then I've got the Frontenac Gris, which is a, you know, like a whatever. It's not, it's not quite the white, but it's, it's, a, it's whiter than the, the regular Frontenac. Um, I have one called Price that is fairly susceptible to disease in some seasons, but it produces really well and it grows really vigorously in our soil. So I've kept that some of that one 
Um, I do have some of Leon Malo, which is a like a purple grape that's also really hardy and it's been around for a while. Um, yeah. And that one does does okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's pretty much what I have left now. Um, okay. In the gotcha. vineyard, so all the varieties I started with. Okay. So I, I'm just reiterating this. You're not spraying anymore other than some compost tea, some foliar stuff that, yeah, I mean, that probably does have some efficaciousness. You're, you're mainly focusing on, uh, it sounds like soil regeneration to give the, the vines what they need, as well as mm-hmm. canopy management, you know, training them and keeping them up and open and airy so that you have airflow and sun penetration. Is that mm-hmm. all right? And otherwise, yep. you know, the other thing is just the attitude of like, I might have some loss this year. And that's part of, <laughs> that's part of the deal. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. And you're, I mean, that's all really fantastic. Do you, do you have any numbers on what your productivity is on an acre of vines? Um, are, you know, wide, widely spaced like that? Yeah, I, um. I don't necessarily have really good numbers, but, you know, like maybe if a three to five tons is like a good amount, I would say I probably have more like a, a half a ton out of the out of the vineyard at this point. It's a very doesn't produce a lot. Part of the reason is that in recent years, um, the last couple of years, I've been cutting a bunch of uh, some of the vines down to uh the ground and just regenerating the trunks because for whatever reason over the years during the like experimental phase of getting getting the vineyard growing uh like there was a lot of winter damage to some of these like frontenac and so it was clear that there was you know vascular the vascular tissue was not was plugged up and so mm-hmm. in the last couple of years I've just been kind of renewing the vines entirely and so it just means cutting them down to the ground and then in a season they'll grow up almost to the, to the full, um, spread on the trellis. And then by the next year I'll have, uh, you know, more heavily producing grape, grapevine. Um, so I've been doing that, but, and I'm hoping that like that results in more production and there's still a lot of gaps in the vineyard. There's some areas that I've been planting new vines and they just have been kind of struggling. Uh, Mm. so there might be like a soil subsoil issue kind of thing. Yeah. And, and needing, just needing a lot more, uh, like composted manure dumped, dumped into the area to, to feed them better. And yeah. And and it's some of them, uh, like I have been experimenting with a few new varieties and those ones have not sort of grown to fill out the vineyard as much as the, some of those other varieties do. And, and I've started expanding the planting of Norton, um, and those can take a few years to develop, you know, s- several years to develop into like a fully productive vine. That's one yeah. thing about Norton is it's like it's this great variety once you get it established, but it's really hard to start from cuttings like uh, dormant cuttings. Right. Um, yeah. I've heard and, of uh, recently. Yeah. And I, I mean, I bought them in the past and that's how they ended up in the vineyard. But I do also try to get... Um, my own cuttings going when I'm trying to expand the vineyard. Yeah. I've heard something about Norton that it actually grows off the fourth through sixth spur. The fruiting spur is like the fourth through sixth spur is more fruitful. So you have Mm. this weird pruning style that you have to adapt 
with Norton. Have you experimented with that or heard anything about that? I wasn't familiar with that. No. Um, this is something. So you'd like, so you'd sort of cluster thin closer to the, closer to the cordon or, or you're saying like lower. No, I think just with pruning instead of going back like normally if you oh you leave a, back a, to a couple more position, buds on it yeah yeah you'd go all the way you'd leave like the yeah all the way out and then maybe even knock off the first through third uh you know uh, bud positions so that mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. not even trying to grow and then you get this really much more fruitful you know positions out on the fourth fifth and sixth uh bud spur yeah, I haven't tried that, but um, it's something to I mean, look at. Uh, I just, yeah, I feel don't like take my, my word for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I could look into it. I, yeah, my yeah. Norton vines are just so productive. I mean, they're just like oh, loaded great. with grapes okay. every <laughs> so year. And then, yeah, how are you pruning then? Uh, yeah, I do. I like spur, spur prune? prune those ones. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, and then I usually go through and like cluster thin as well. You know, around this time of year. I'm really interested that you you're having an issue like winter damage on the frontenac, which, you know, has been, I just considered to be, you know, a, a Minnesota production. It must be super winter hardy, but mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the one that you singled out is like having, looks like it has some, some freeze damage on it. Yeah. That one. And then the, like the Leon Malo and the, there's a Marshall Foch, which is a relative of Leon Malo. And I think that it's because we get more erratic temperatures down here in the ah, south. It's like it, the same it. reason why, like, you know, the maple trees don't produce as, you have silver maples and we can get maple syrup, tap them for maple syrup, but the season is really short. Right. Um, and so you get this it's erratic like, change from summer to winter. And it's right. like, we can get in November, we can get 10 degrees. And that is so shocking to a vine to right. go from that quick transition instead of like a gradual transition to cold. They, they can't build up those, the chemistry in their tissues to, to fight off the cold. And, off. Yeah. Yeah. And Got it. From, from it. So I think that's largely to explain, you know, explains the, the problem with, but that with is, I, but I, I will just editorialize that. I think, you know, as we move into a, a future that is more and more, likely going to be erratic everywhere and mm-hmm. and extreme erratic you know erratics erraticism <laughs> yeah yeah uh, erraticality i don't know yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 yeah as we head in that direction you know knowing these kind of things is probably important you know that maybe that's not the variety to think about as a as a really um adaptable resilient variety for the kind of thing uh, for for anywhere um but mm-hmm. it's good to know i'm curious then about comfrey if you if you want to talk about comfrey and mm-hmm. how, you know what what yeah well how do you use that well and i've why seen did, why did you stumble oh. upon comfrey <laughs> well i've people here use comfrey in a in a specific way as a border around their garden and it it basically creates like a living barrier to like invasive grasses moving into their garden beds because it just mm. is like three foot like smothers anything within that that zone and so mm-hmm. grasses have trouble creeping through it into a space and i was just like wow this is a great living mulch i wonder if this would just smother out the grass um around the grapevines and you know in conventional vineyards i've seen they just go through and they spray herbicide within the grape row to keep that competition down from the grasses and right. I'm not going to do that here, obviously. And even 
the herbicide can be damaging to the grapevine too. Right. Um, and so I thought of this idea, why not try to use this, the comfrey in the same way to be a living mulch. And it's got deeper root systems, it's got more like a, not necessarily a taproot, but deeper roots that go down. And I think they compete less with the grapevines than the grasses would for, for water and nutrients. And then they'll smother out the grasses. And also I've, one thing that I've done, um, we have limitations on like what we can do as far as fossil fuel use here. And so I haven't been able to just buy a lawnmower that I could run between the grapes and mow the grass. And so um, I do have, we do have a tractor and I've been able to mow the wide swath between the rows, but within the rows, there's like lots of grass and it grows pretty tall. And so I've maintain that by scything it. So it's like a, you know, basically a big long blade on a stick and it takes a lot of work. Uh, it takes a lot of time and energy to yeah. mow with that. And it, you have to be careful between the vines because like one long, wrong swing and you just cut off your vine and set it back <laughs> a couple of years or right. it damage the trunk and then it gets crown gall or something. And, um, so yeah, um, I've been, scything and i was just like wow this just takes so long is there any other thing that what else can i do here and so i thought of the comfrey and if i just plant three comfrey in between you know in the space between grapevines within the row they will spread out three or four feet around the crown and just smother all the grass in that area and they'll kind of like the leaves will kind of straddle the trunks of the grapevines and also you know, smother the grass that's close to them. And I just wanted to see if it would work. And if I do want to cut down the comfrey, which it does have a flowering stalk that it sends up. And so it can interfere with airflow. So if I do want to cut it down, I can go through with my scythe and in like one swing, cut down all three comfrey very easily versus if it was grass, I'd have to make so many cuts and the grass is tough and it's, yeah, it's just yeah. a, it's much more work. And so I think the comfrey in, in a lot of ways has been useful. And I, it was just an experiment to see how it works. And I think it's working. The only issue maybe I've had is that in some parts of the vineyard, the comfrey doesn't grow as vigorously as other parts. And so it's taking longer for it to get to its uh, full, full size and, and actually have the like smothering effect that I intended to have. But, you know, it's still, it. it's still growing and it's taking over. Um, and it seems to be doing a good job. And when it does produce flowers, they're just, they're constantly loaded with pollinators, like bumblebees, all kinds of bees. And so it can provide all this food for, for pollinators as well. I never, I didn't even think of that added benefit, but to sort of promote, um, sort of like yeah. ecological health in the area, giving food to all those pollinators would be good too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I use nasturtium here um, in a similar way, although it's probably less good at outcompeting grasses and things like that. But it does create a beautiful ground cover mulch, you know, chop and drop mulch that, I mean, here just dies back naturally. Don't even have to chop and drop it. It becomes the the necromass that feeds the soil through the winter for the next season um, and creates this beautiful, you know, I mean, it's beautiful as well. It's this, you know, sprawling. Yeah, ground mm -hmm. cover with flowers that the bees love. It's always full, you know, full of bees when the flowers come out. Um, and that, I mean, I, I think so much of our, our modern experience of agriculture and viticulture has been divorced from 
the sense of beauty of the aesthetic of it and any any way that we can re in, re input beauty into our our you know wine production systems i think is a really nice thing because there's so much opportunity for it um, beauty and multiple purposes and you know mm-hmm. all all that stuff so diversity yeah yeah the diversity now comfrey i mean i mentioned this to you but i as i understand it you know it's it's got a lot of medicinal uses it's it, it comes from old words that have to do with like knitting bones together. And it's been considered this, like if you have like a break or, a, you know, an injury to your skeletal system, you create like a poultice and wrap it, wrap your arm or your leg or your toe or whatever with a comfrey poultice. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you're running, running. <laughs> I know that you have animals in the vineyard from time to time. And I've also heard that comfrey can be toxic to animals and to humans if we eat it and ingest it. It's more like a topical thing. Do you have any knowledge about that? Do you have any concerns about that with the animals that go through the vineyard and the comfrey? Well, since I started planting the comfrey and in, in the vineyard, I haven't had livestock in there. Although I guess last year, I think it was some turkeys that somebody's raising here ran into the vineyard and dug up a bunch of my irises, which is kind of funny. Um, (laughs) But um, (laughs) aside from that, uh, there's not a lot of livestock. I did have uh, South Down baby doll sheep grazing in there several years ago for maybe a year and a half or two years. And that was great because, I mean, not having to mow with a tractor or a scythe is pretty, pretty incredible. And that would be my ideal for mowing in the vineyard. Um, but since I don't have that happening, I'm, you know, I'm having to do this, this comfrey. Um, yeah, since you mentioned that, um, I looked it up and was just, you know, I definitely found information saying there's, you know, alkaloids in, in comfrey that are pretty toxic and I guess they affect the liver. Um, and, and yeah, some sources were recommending against feeding it to livestock. And then I, you find everything on the internet. So I definitely <laughs> found people that were like, oh, it's great. And in parts of the world, people are specifically feeding it as a, like a high protein forage to their livestock. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, so which I one imagine. is which one is yeah. true? I mean, I think that the fact that there are alkaloids in it that, that are known to be toxic would in- indicate it might have it's some long-term best. negative effects. Yeah. And, um, and I wouldn't well, want to be ingesting it myself as a human and be potentially ruining my liver because right, right. something you're going to come back from. Especially if you're drinking a lot of that wine from the vineyard to <laughs> save that liver for that. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. I Well, I, I, I wonder, I mean, you know, sometimes you can trust anim, you know, animals as well to just not eat the things that they, I mean, that they will know mm-hmm. like oh you know, know since it's comfrey is a natural naturally occurring plant in, in their world they probably have encountered it and be like yeah i just leave that alone when i'm grazing right. because it makes me feel bad kind of thing um what what has kept you from getting animals back in the vineyard do you want to are you aiming to do more of that or is it hard to do it when you're doing the polyculture with the vegetables and things like that growing yeah, animals are just a whole other responsibility. And I would rather be working with somebody else that's already keeping animals and wants to maintain them year round. Um, right. I've been going to Florida for the winters and I wouldn't be able to do that if I was taking care of some livestock. So if I could, yeah, cooperate with other people um, who are interested in running specifically the South Down baby doll sheep, because they're like 
they're just a breed that's very low to the ground and they can't stand up and, and eat the grapevines um, right. that are trained higher. So, um, yeah, and then they, they mow and they're good um, meat sheep and wool sheep. And um, that would be the ideal if I was going to have livestock in there again. I did run tri- chicken tractors with laying hens through the vineyard and some some meat chickens early on. Um, so I had a couple of chicken tractors. I was uh, pulling between the rows of grapes to add fertility and um, and then get more like egg production out of the vineyard early on. But did that um, work well? Yeah, it seemed to work well. It was a lot of work. So <laughs> the um, daily moving. <laughs> yeah. So eventually I kind of um, got tired of it. And so I've been just buying inputs like composted manure from local dairy farms to add more f- fertility to the soil. And um, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing instead. Well, uh, yeah. It sounds like a pretty big space but i wonder have you encountered anything uh like drift or overspray from the conventional farming around you yeah that's one thing i should have mentioned is like one of the problems in the past has been pesticide drift because we do have a lot of dairy farmers in the area and they're growing corn and soybeans and uh we used to have uh, this farming neighbor across the street and he had some fields that would get sprayed um and I definitely noticed pesticide drift on, in my vineyard and like spotting on, in my garden, which is like right across the road from his his fields. But like after I talked with him about that, he was he converted all that space over there to the CRP program, which is like basically fallow. Um, and so he was very he was a great guy. Um, and wow, so that's, yeah, yeah, he he did that so that he wasn't getting pesticide drift on our on our land over here because he knew we were concerned about that and since then like when i was getting drift i was getting sort of like this deforming curl at the end of the shoots and i was like what is this like what could this possibly be and then i realized there was like spotting as well and so it was was just like herbicide being sprayed and once once he turned that land across the road into uh into CRP, then I didn't have any problem. Again. What does CRP stand for? Uh, conservation Reserve Program. So it's a we have a lot of our land is in the Conservation Reserve Program as well. It's for specifically land that's considered highly erodible. Um, so okay. that's pretty much all of our land is considered considered highly erodible because we have these rolling <laughs> hills, and so when you're doing agriculture on it, you're going to get erosion and that's you know that was also a big part of my motivation and wanting to do uh grapes here in a vineyard is because they're a perennial crop it's a way to use our rolling hills um, and get production from them and then also when i do this intercropping there's always a strip that's perennial between the the beds so i don't have a problem with erosion like if you know the previous farmer who just was growing corn here every year and all the topsoil was just washing away. So it's a right. much better way to, you know, use our land. I think the best way to use our land is either for uh, as pasture for livestock or perennial crops, because the right. you know the row crops are just totally destructive to the land and the um, and the soil. Yeah, and for anyone listening who hasn't encountered, if you're like from the coasts and you aren't familiar with Midwest agriculture, from which you know 
all of your cereals and grains and everything comes from and, and meat tofu <laughs> and bean yeah meat and everything else um drift or overspray drift is this thing that happens because the chemicals that are used are so potent on so coin corn and soy um and and they just drift with even a gentle breeze for hundreds of yards and you can see the results of that in vineyards uh, you know any anybody that you talk to who's growing vineyards in the midwest has stories of drift where dicamba and 2,4-D which are common sprays you know might might cross a quarter mile you know or or five you know a few hundred yards at least and get into the vineyard and defoliate or uh totally deform the shoots of the vineyard and and make productivity for that year impossible and um that's that's our food system that's like the the de rigueur for the vast majority of of american food system so it's getting to know some midwest vineyards is very eye-opening in terms of learning where your food comes from and how it's grown um and and drift is that that sort of window into like what are we doing like you know um so yeah and i have my i have my vineyard listed on the drift watch page which is some kind of a program that farmers us people who spray herbicides can consult to see if there are like vineyards or other sensitive uh, agricultural fields in the area where they're spraying. I don't know how much they use that or how much they're required to look at it, but it is on the map. We have, um, we like during the summertime, we have um, planes going over like spraying. Um, So they spray from planes here, which is very much like encourages drift. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Right. Yeah. So just totally dousing like these fields in, in these mm-hmm. chemicals, whatever they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's pretty eye opening to, to hear about that. Um, but back to your vineyard. <laughs> um, and some of the things that I'm really, cons- you know, curious about now, I know you have a tolerance for loss, but it does, from what I could tell, it doesn't sound like you have a deer fence around this acre. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So you, and you have rabbits that nibble on your crops and things like that. What kind of, you know, besides the bird netting that you, you have to do, are you having any loss from deer or anything at all like that? Like is, you know, what's, and if not, why not? (laughs) Like what's happening? What do you do about that? Um, yeah, I don't have a lot of loss from deer. I, I don't have a lot to compare it to because I don't know, you know, I'm I'm sure other vineyards have, have more deer pressure. We tend to not have a lot of deer in the village because they're just more skittish um, around okay. here. But I, I have seen deer out by my vineyard, you know, in the mornings and the evenings. But really, I only see damage on shoots that are lower, like the the top cordon seems to be like those shoots don't ever seem to get eaten. Um, it's only if, if I have like a, a new trunk being trained and I, um, like I have a, usually have a tree tube around it and it's, if it grows a little bit above the tree tube and it's like sort of at that mid level height, it will get grazed by deer. Um, Mm. but usually I try to kind of move the tree tube up with the growing shoot until it reaches the, the wire. And then I, you know, and then it's pretty much okay. So the deer pressure doesn't seem to be much at all. Um, and it's only at certain times of the year that I even see that kind of damage, um, like around this time of year. I'm not Which sure why that is, but the deer are June. definitely not 
a big pest at this point in my vineyard. Huh. The rabbits have been more of a pest, um, but I've kind of figured out how to deal with them. I just have to protect the trunks because if the trunks are exposed in the wintertime, uh, they will, rabbits just kind of are looking for food and they'll just girdle all of the, the bark off the outside of the, the trunk. And then it will, you know, I just have to cut it off because it's, if it doesn't have any, any bark or, or tissue, vascular tissue, then it's going to, it's going to be, it's just going to die. Uh, right. so that can happen, but uh, the way that I deal with that is just putting a collar, of like a ring of chicken wire around the trunks, the established trunks and, and just leave it there. And, and it seems to keep the, the damage, prevent the damage entirely. Yeah. That's nice. That's nice and minimal. I want to, and talk then the, to you know, the crops out. that I plant out there, like the intercropping, uh, <laughs> There's a lot of things that we can't grow here unless we put a fence around them because of rabbits and deer and what crops I do grow in the vineyard. I don't have to fence because like deer and rabbits just don't seem to be interested in cucumbers or squash or melons. And I've grown like onions in the past um, and I've grown potatoes. So those are just a few crops that I can grow out there that don't have any kind of pressure from rabbits uh, damage from. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And can you talk about your, your winemaking? How, what's your experience with winemaking? Any training or any, and, and what are you doing to make wine with these grapes? I definitely don't have any formal training. It's just been kind of experimenting and learning over the years. Um, I've been making, making wine for a long time. I used to have community garden plots in Madison, Wisconsin, before I moved to Dancing Rabbit. And, uh, I was growing grapes in there and I was making some wine on a small scale. Um, but I, you know, I've tried different, uh, different kinds of wine. I've made like a nouveau type, um, wine from some of my, my purple grapes here. And, uh, then I make like kind of a burgundy type, like full bodied red wine. And, uh, I haven't always been impressed with the, the red wines that I can make here. Just, I think mm. there are too many, difficulties and um getting a balanced wine because of the acidity and the the things that i have to struggle with as far as acid and, and balancing the flavors um, yeah. and components so um i've been more impressed with white wines and usually when i'm making white wines i will uh like cold ferment them to retain like fruity esters like the fruitiness of the flavor of the wine and and i tend to like those wines that i can make um from the varieties and can grow here they're definitely different from like you know a lot of white wines you know vinifera white wines they tend to be fruitier but there's so many more there's so many more flavors out there with different grape varieties like the hybrids and some of the american grapes and i tend to like uh some of those flavors uh of like the fruitier wines like a Niagara or something, um, Ontario and those, those varieties that maybe some people would turn up their noses at because they're, you know, American varieties. And they, they tend to also have to like back sweeten them because they don't have enough natural sugars, um, to make a stable wine or, or they just, you know, sweeten them to make them taste more fruity and, and, sort of it's a better match with the flavor, that fruity fruitiness of the grape itself. Um, yeah. But I, I really like the white wines I can make here, and I haven't figured out the red wines yet. Even Norton. Norton's supposed to make a really good red, like full-bodied red wine, 
and I'm still not impressed with what I've been able to accomplish as far as a full-bodied red wine because mostly I think because of the acidity uh, mm. on the grapes like it's just I I tend to have conditions where it's high, I have to right? harvest the I have to harvest the grapes earlier than ideal um, right because of whatever's going on like the the birds are <laughs> Despite the bird netting, <laughs> the birds are finding and getting to the grapes anyways. And also, like the longer they're out there, the more likely the raccoons are to find them. And then I've been having raccoons that just climb on top of the bird netting, like rip holes in it and go in and eat all the grapes. So that's another another pest that I have to deal with um, oh, wow. more recently that are they've got those opposable thumbs and (laughs) and are much smarter about like trying to get to things so yeah do yeah do you have any um deterrence for those yet have you come come upon any way to prevent those not really i do set traps like live traps out there um uh have you ever caught a raccoon Oh yeah, we've caught raccoons, and some people here actually eat raccoons. I tried to eat one a couple of years ago, or like tried it, and it's just way too gamey and weird tasting. <laughs> and they're also they're too cute and smart to. They're it's hard to. Uh, I don't know. It's they're it's not to... like like eating a wild rabbit is a little easier than eating a a raccoon. Uh, raccoons right. are sort of vicious and defend themselves much more than rabbits do and i don't know what that that means but like it's and then and then add on top of that it you know they they taste very gamey and i just don't like the flavor so yeah they're they're um, omnivores versus herbivores right right i mean yeah. they they eat a little of everything um but yeah they're they're getting to be they weren't such a problem in past years but it seems like their populations now are increasing we you know in the village here we've created like because of all the people here, we've created like a predator-free habitat for rabbits and and raccoons oh, and the coyotes right. are in the area, but they stay out of the village. And so they're just kind of, you know, loving the conditions we create for them. And if we don't eat them, then they're going to overpopulate or, you know, their population is going to go up and then we're going to be competing with them even more for growing food, you know? Yeah, I think the same is true here in my backyard so not not a lot yeah. of different from uh, from from Missouri in that sense we have a you know coyotes do come through but you know it, they they have to keep moving cuz it's not you know they don't have a lot of places to hang out um right. and and so you know they I think they kind of find backyards that they know where people don't go into them maybe some older folks who don't go into their backyards very often it's sort of overgrown there's some some spots you know they have their favorite spots where they can move through and spend a night there or whatever maybe not spend a night but spend a day there and mm-hmm. then travel on um but because of that because there aren't many predators the raccoons are starting to be a problem i went out my compost pile had like a whole family of seven raccoons on it the other oh. morning <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to um, put a uh, hardware cloth around it or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, and I was like, well, when these grapes ripen, this is going to be a problem. We're going to have uh, we're going to have a fight on our hands. So, um, do you get do you do you get pests eating your eating your grapes? Do you have to put bird netting on them or anything? You know, it's interesting. So i I have some I have some vines that are I I consider decorative or part of that permaculture ethic of you know. I, it's for the, it's for them 
Um, and I don't know how much of that is smart because it's luring them in and or how much of it is like keeps them away. But the front yard vineyard never gets touched. Hmm. Um, and it could. But the, yeah, like I've seen raccoons on our pergola eating our Pinot Noir. Rats for sure love them. Yeah. And and that's about it. Maybe some squirrels, but I, I think they I don't know. They, they seem less interested in the sweet fruits like that. Um, there's enough avocados around that they avoid the grapes so far. But rats and raccoons have have definitely eaten them. And I'm, you know, and we have some young vines growing in the back now, a bunch of them. And that's where I'm like, I, I there's several varieties of grapes that I've just let go that I'm going to give to them. And then the others, I'm just going to be like, yeah, don't touch these in various ways, like bird netting and things like that. And hopefully they'll they'll see that there's some that they can easily access and some that they can't and then get the picture. And then I don't know what will happen after that yeah. <laughs> if they don't get the picture, you know. Um, but yeah, it is. It's an interesting thing. And this is, you know, we're we're right here in the center of Los Angeles. So it's yeah, fun, fun <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah. Well. I, I love hearing about this. I mean, I love hearing what you're doing. I love that you're doing all this. I, I One thing I wanted to ask you about, I or, or just mention for people, you have one of the great, best videos I've seen about how to propagate vines by layering uh, mm. online. And so anybody who wants to check out how to do that, it's really cool. But you had... You have multiple. So the you're, you're doing layering. You're doing like a green cutting propagation technique as well is that correct as yep. opposed to like the the winter prune propagation the dormant, the dormant cane cutting, propa- yeah. propagation mm-hmm. so how do you do the green cutting propagation is that sort of just very similar or are you using like a rooting hormone how do you do that uh yeah basically you cut green shoots off um around this time of year maybe a little bit later than now but sometimes i get like suckers coming off of trunks and I'll use those as well because they're not oh, yeah. quite as like, they're not like bull canes. They're not like super vigorous. And if you use shoots that are too vigorous, they're just not really, adapt. you know, they're not going to, they're less likely to, um, you know, put out roots and and before the, the tip just kind of dries out. And so anyways, there's a, a specific kind of shoot that you would do this green cutting rooting these green cuttings with and basically i just you know cut these lengths that are maybe maybe like eight to ten inches long of growing green shoots and uh and then you dip them in rooting hormone uh like a solution that i I mix up with uh, and then soak them for a few minutes in the the rooting hormone and then just put them into like a, a medium like i've used Coquar or peat moss or um, some kind of mixture of those things with like soil and and perlite works too, but just good drainage. And I've just right. been putting them in a bucket with uh, like a five gallon bucket with holes drilled in it. And um, I've experimented with different methods, like either putting the lid for the bucket on top if, um, or putting some kind of like plastic over the top with holes cut in it to allow airflow. And I think having more um, light penetration and at least more light falling on the the shoots. Um, and each shoot has to have like at least like a half of a leaf left on it or some kind of leaf, like some kind of foliage left on it to collect energy until it gets 
enough roots built up to uh, send out new shoots. But if you kind of use this method, it's, I, I don't know, this is the way that I do it. There's probably, you know, having a, you know, a mister or a bank, like some, some kind of like setup where you were um, misting the cuttings would be uh, preferable, but I just don't have that set up. So I do this kind of uh, more, um, yeah, I don't know this, this way of using buckets to retain moisture um, and, and keep the cuttings in sort of a situation where they're going to build up that callus tissue, the undifferentiated tissue that then they send roots out from. Mm. And, uh, it seems to work fairly well. And some of the varieties like Norton that are very hard to, to start from dormant cuttings can be easier to start from green cutting. So, oh, okay. Interesting. And then the layering, I just use, I've just been using that to fill in gaps in the vineyard. So I'll just let, you know, one vine grow long enough to reach the next spot and then bury the um, bury the cane and and leave a growing shoot on the opposite side and just like let it grow there and root until it gets pretty well established on its own roots and then cut it off from the parent vine. I now I noticed that you were doing like a cut through the the cane that you were you know burying to mm-hmm. sort of give it you know give the vine a heads up that it needed to put out roots. Have you experimented mm-hmm. with not doing that or with just sort of scraping off? the outer layer of bark down to expose the cambium layer or anything like that, like other techniques besides that cut? Yeah, I think any of those things will work. I think, okay. and yeah, I, I just, the cut will, like you said, it sends sort of like a, it cuts some of the vascular tissue so that that shoot end is like, oh, we don't, we're not getting as much nutrients from the parent vine. Let's send out some roots and, and start right. get, getting our own nutrients and, and water. So yeah, that's it's pretty... sort of the purpose of it. But even if you, if you just buried it without cutting it, the nodes are going to send out shoots because they sense there's soil there. It's like, and you can also, like I say in the video, what I've done before is had, you know, one vine growing in a garden bed and it sends out a bunch of, sh- of canes. And then I just bury those. And at each node, it's going to send out roots. And then you just cut in between the nodes and each one of those nodes then has a bunch of roots on it and it sends out a new shoot and so that's a new grapevine right there right Um, so you can get like just dozens of them really quickly you know in a a season or two by using that method and what time of year are you burying them is that in like in the spring after so because these are dormant canes right you've sort of like pruned everything else back and then this is what's the one that you left long that you bury is that correct Mm -hmm. yeah and, and you, I mean, ideally, I guess it would be like a one-year cane, but it doesn't have to be. Um, it can be a slightly older older cane a couple of years, and it'll still send out roots okay. if it's huh. buried. But yeah, when you, you do the when you do the layering like in a garden bed, and you and you're just burying the whole cane, like you can do that with the one-year cane, and it it'll send out roots pretty readily from from each of those. Now, have you ever considered not cutting it? off the connection to the to the mother so that you just have this and then <laughs> and then keeping that going like keep layering so you have like a continuous yeah like, like one, one, one great, whole great line going through yeah. the whole thing. yeah 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 i haven't really think thought about that but i suppose that's possible i don't know what the benefits or drawbacks would be probably yeah probably getting around might be difficult <laughs> you have all these like little yeah like yeah. little um 
portals that you'd have to crawl yeah. through to get from one side to the other. But but it, I don't know. I just love the idea of there it being like this uh, super organism of interconnection. Mm-hmm. You know, like a huge vineyard network of vine, like of a single vine. Um, yeah, that that's expresses as individual vines. But there's something that you know works for my my perspective on life that that <laughs> appeals to for some reason. Um, well, that's great. I I again thank you for for sharing all this. Uh, do you have? I think you've you've talked about some of where you came from, but you know, are, do you have any inspiration or or resources or ideas that that you know shape what you do and and keep you on on this? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty like you said normal life for you, but I didn't you know just curious if there's any anything if anybody's curious and wants to learn more, how would they start down this path? Yeah, I guess one of the big inspirations that I get and the way that a lot of things work here at Dancing Rabbit is like, we're creating a whole village that is trying to work without fossil fuel. And so we don't have an alternative. We can't just like throw fossil fuel at a problem to solve it, which is what our economy does in general. It just is like, hey, we've got a problem. Let's dump a lot of fossil fuel on it, like either through pesticides or fertilizers or whatever it is. And when you create a situation where you can't do any of those things, you have to innovate and you have to figure out ways to do without it. And that gets you thinking in a different direction. Like we have, um, you know, these invasive species on our land and the government would like us like for the CRP program would like us to spray herbicides to control them. And we're like, well, we don't want to do that we're going to try these other organic methods and see if we can accomplish the same thing without the herbicides. Um, and so that's, that's definitely, you have to sort of create a situation where you're, you know, limiting your options and, and then all these new options might come about. Like, you know, why did I decide to start planting comfrey in the vineyard? It's because I had a problem to solve and I didn't want to just spray herbicide and I couldn't just spray herbicide. Um, So I think that's and and sometimes it's it's definitely limiting, (laughs) but it at least puts you in a situation where you have to innovate. And people always, yeah, they get into this situation and they're just like, well, I can't make it work without the this thing or the fossil fuel. And so they always then turn to some kind of option that that involves um, the easy way out, which is not the long-term sustainable way out. So, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you. And uh, where, where can you mention again, where people can see, uh, you know, if you have Instagram or a- any mm-hmm. online presence that you want people to check, check into? Yeah. The big, uh, sort of my big presence on the internet is my YouTube channel, Hardcore Sustainable. And I've been doing that for several years now. I have like over 200 videos. And then I also have an Instagram page that's the same, Hardcore Sustainable. So you can follow me in those, both of those places. And does Dancing Rabbit Eco Village have its own website or <laughs> anything like that? Yeah, dancingrabbit.org is our website. Um, we also do have a, a YouTube channel that's just Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. And uh, that's most of our, our online presence. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. It's good, great talking to you. And I love just hearing about <laughs> about you growing grapes there in Missouri, which seems like a pretty extreme place. We didn't even talk about t- tornadoes. Do you guys get those? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, we get tornadoes through here every once in a while, and we have uh, we have like a village wide system where we we have different storm shelters here, and so we go down into the storm shelters when there's a tornado going by close. And for, we've been fortunate enough since I've lived here and since the village started not to have a tornado come through because it would be devastating if if our village would got hit, it would probably just like wipe us off the map and we'd have to start over or just move somewhere else. <laughs> so I hope it never happens, but we've had tornadoes touch down just like across the road, you know, or, or down the, maybe like a half, half mile down the road. I remember seeing several years ago in a cornfield, just this path that had been uh, torn through a, a cornfield from a tornado that touched down. And so it's, it's possible, but it's not something that I really think about as much as as other problems that we might have to deal with. So hopefully cross my fingers it will never <laughs> right. it will never find its way to Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. <laughs> yeah. I um I mean just saying that, I, you know, I I uh was listening to some some folks talk this morning about, you know, instead of resilience, this idea of resilience which sort of implies it's like you cut it off, you know, above the ground and it grows back. Um, you know, we might be heading into a future where it's like devastation after devastation that, you know, without the time to even recover. And it's more rather than resilience, it's like a adaptability is maybe mm-hmm. what we, we should consider building for and thinking about in our in our systems and things like that. I, I don't know. I feel like that's a interesting way to approach you know, permaculture and just agriculture and viticulture in general. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of challenges with climate change. I mean, because you can't just uproot plants and move them. And it takes a while for things like fruit trees to get established. And, you know, maybe by the time you get a a good vineyard or orchard established, the weather is going to move, have moved on. So, yeah, yeah, you don't know how it's going to happen. You know, diversity is usually a good key to like surviving in nature. Yeah, it's, I, I'm just talking to some folks on the East Coast about that as well, where, you know, they, they've just been hit by a historic and historically late and historically hard freeze uh, in May and, mm-hmm. you know, basically devastated a lot of viticulture there uh, this for this year for the 2023 vintage. And, oh. you know, and that was what we were saying. It was like kind of maybe you can't think of yourself as a as a as a vineyardist anymore you have to think of yourself as this polyculture farmer grapes being one of the crops and then you know a mm-hmm. dozen other things too and then in any year just build your business plan around 50 percent of it making it through to harvest yeah. and uh, I, mean, I laugh but i you know i think we were dead serious about that it was like like uh, legitimately this might be the only way forward you know um with these extremities so it's yeah um, but I'll I'll be interested to see what videos you're putting out, and uh, encourage anybody who's you know curious about curious about these things to check them out because definitely very informative, very cool stuff there. So thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It's been nice chatting with you, and it's it's great to connect with other people that are thinking along the same lines. Because sometimes I feel like I'm pretty isolated here. Of course, I'm not like connected with the commercial end of winemaking as much um to know like what people are doing out there and then i'm also like in the whole eastern part of the country or outside of the west coast there's and maybe the southwest there's not a lot of like organic vineyards (laughs) (laughs) there's fewer vineyards in general but like they're they're just it's so impossible to grow grapes or it's seen as impossible to grow grapes organically that 
that they just don't exist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I just was, I've been searching. I mean, I, I really wasn't searching for like, you know, organic vineyards in the Midwest. When I discovered you, I was looking for just this idea of, of a, a vineyard established around the, the principles of permaculture and stumbled upon you. And, but before that I, I was actively looking for Iowa. I went to school in Iowa. So I, you know, it has a soft spot for me and really mm-hmm. talked to some of the, in, in this quest talked to like multiple people who were, um, you know, very founding members of like, vi- you know, vineyards and viticulture in, in Iowa. And they, you know, basically everyone was like, no, there is none. There is no organic vineyard in all of Iowa. Like yeah. we tried, a bunch of people tried, they're, they, they're not doing it anymore. And you know, for, for the, all the reasons that you can, you've already mentioned, um, specifically the climate though, being so intense, uh, to, intensely humid and wet and especially at the wrong time the wrong time of the year. <clears throat> so, yeah, yeah. but what, like one thing that I think about is like, Oh, the example of Norton, like Norton in my experience has a perfect crop, no matter what the year is. And so obviously grapes have the genetics right. to be grown organically without doing anything to them and have perfect clusters of grapes and be pretty good, you know, a pretty good variety for making wine. So like, what we need more of is like plant breeding specifically. And this is the thing that I'm talking about where like when you have the option of just spraying pesticides, um, like <laughs> what, what is your incentive to breed uh, varieties that are, oh, that God. don't need pesticides? And also like what incentive does like agribusiness have to, to breed those varieties if they're selling pesticides to make money, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I know you haven't listened to, um, you know, a, a, a whole bunch of the episodes of this podcast, but this is exactly what I've been saying for the mm-hmm. last year um, in multiple ways. <laughs> it's like we it, breeding needs to be part of the everyone who's in agriculture of any, at any level, especially viticulture, needs to be part of your farm. There should be some aspect of your farm that is is a is a breeding program and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if we invested the time and resources into breeding resilient and adapt you know adaptable varieties over the last 50 years instead of developing these chemicals all those resources you know like you said if we if we just transitioned our our times and energies and resources into breeding rather than developing chemicals we'd be we'd have a bunch of nortons you know mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. bulletproof varieties um luckily yeah, people are it is it i i'm now seeing that it's happening a bit more and people are receptive mm-hmm. to different varieties so it's really cool that i think we're in a great time just like necessity being the mother of invention uh it's it's actually starting to happen but um thank you for thank you for saying i mean i love that you just came to that same conclusion uh in your own way yeah well i'm looking forward to listening to other episodes because it sounds really interesting and i i'll be downloading and then listening to your podcast while i'm working out in the vineyard so (laughs) be inspiring you know (laughs) awesome well thank you again dad it's great really great conversation Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And I just wanted to put the word out there. If you are somebody who is doing something like what Dan is doing or in Missouri or what I'm doing in South Central Los Angeles, I'd love to talk to you. Or if you're somebody who would like to do that and just want some guidance, I'd also like to talk to you and 
and be happy to answer any questions and give you any opinions and thoughts and anything helpful advice that I can give. And in other words, I'd just like to connect with people who are doing similar things or would like to do be doing similar things. And you can contact me at connect at organicwinepodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and find out what you're doing or find out what you'd like to do and see if I could help. That's connect at organicwinepodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening.